Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we are talking about number 252, Rue Monsieur Le Prince by Ralph Adams Cram. This story was published in 1895. I'm very excited to talk about this story. But before we get into it, two points of news. The the first is that this is the first episode of Elder Sign that we're recording since we've uh, been encouraging people to write reviews of our podcast by having a little contest to give things away. And as this episode is coming out, I probably will be in the process of figuring out who wins the prizes. But uh, that's months in our future. But I did want to say that we've been really delighted and really excited about the, the response. I think we've gotten about 15 new reviews on each of our shows, uh, at least just on uh, Apple Podcasts alone because of this. And we're extremely grateful for that. So that's the first item is just to say thank you so much for taking us up on that. And we are excited to give away some prizes as well. But the other thing that we want to do is let you know about a Patreon episode that we did. This is the story called The Star Stealers by Edmund Hamilton. This is a story from the 1920s. Neither of us had read Hamilton before, but I know that I at least really, really loved this story, The Star Stealers. It's cosmic horror before Lovecraft, but still in this kind of interwar pulp magazine tradition. And in fact, I think that we can see some ways that this particular story influenced Lovecraft's work from the late tw- later in the 20s and the 1930s quite directly. Uh, also, this story invents the United Federation of Planets. So I think in general, it was quite an important story. It was also really fun. Some gorgeous prose to go with it. So if you're not already a supporter on Patreon, please join join us so you can hear us talk about this story. It was uh, an amazing story and you'll get access to this episode and then uh, three or four dozen more. I mean, I've lost track of how many episodes we've done on Patreon (laughs) at this point because it is a lot. I feel like I'm loading stuff up onto Patreon all the time. And then of course, from the second level on, you get to decide what we cover here on Elder Sign. So all right, bits of news, announcements out of the way. Let's get to this story I have been really excited to get to Ralph Adams Cram for a long while, but I don't really think that he's a big deal for most weird fiction readers, Uh, though I will say he did beat out M.R. James on this vote. Uh, M.R. James has still never gotten a story selected on a vote, but my reasons for wanting to read Cram are, are really they're, they're personal, really. Uh, Cram is a famous neo-Gothic architect from the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th centuries. And one of the buildings that he designed is the chapel at Princeton University, where I have spent an inordinate amount of time listening to music and just preparing for class, doing a lot of reading in this absolutely gorgeous environment that he built. And we're going to see quite clearly in this story that Cram is an architect, that he is really interested in buildings and their histories. And while I suspect that you're not going to love this story, Brandon, I mean, I don't love this story either. I still think it's a really interesting entry in our growing list of haunted house stories. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think I probably have a little bit more warm feelings toward this story than you do. But it's because of style choices, and there's a few paragraphs that I really love. It's not a story that uh, you know I'm going to put on my best of list and and probably go back and reread a bunch of times. But it's a story that I learned a little bit from as a writer. I really enjoy what Cram is doing here. But yeah, definitely not going to make the best of list of the year. Though I do think that we're going to end up bringing this episode back when we do our year in review show, but that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So <laughs> let's just do the recap first and then then we can do our discussion. So uh, Brandon, take it away. Yeah. So this story opens in the year of 1886. The narrator, an American 
finds himself in Paris, and he hopes to spend some time, maybe in an effort to save money, staying with his old friend from Boston named Eugene Marie Dardèche. Dardèche, again, the narrator's friend, left Boston because he inherited his aunt's estate, including the title house of the story, number 252 Rue Monsieur Le Prince. We'll probably just be calling that number 252 for the rest (laughs) of the story because my French pronunciation is real bad. But this inheritance strikes the narrator as odd because he really didn't get the sense that Dardèche and his aunt, whose name is Blay de Tarta, had much to do with one another. Eugene spoke of his aunt as being more or less wicked and witch-like with a penchant for black magic. The only thing the narrator can think of as to why Dardesh inherited this estate is that Dardesh has his own hobbledehoy tendencies towards occultism and Buddhism, and this may have led his aunt to believe that one day this slippery slope would lead him down the path of dark magic, to mix a metaphor there. Uh, <laughs> but so far, that has not proven to be the case. Not everyone is a fan of uh, Blade de Tartas' choice of inheritor. For instance, Sar Tora Vieja, the, quote, king of sorcerers, had expected to be the one who inherits everything from Blay. And when he found out that he was receiving nothing but the contents of the house uh, at number 252, Sar entered the property and really stripped it bare. He took everything from the place and he left behind, you know, because he's not a spiteful man, some curses that extended to whoever lived there in the future. He cursed the house. After managing this bit of mischief, Tor Vieja disappeared. So with that kind of background in place, our narrator sets out to find his friend Dardesh at the inherited property in the Latin Quarter of Paris, which is number 252. The narrator discovers that the house has a reputation for being strange, as you can imagine a cursed house might be, even among the odd houses that make up the area where the home is situated. And we get a great description of the property here that I'd like to read. Number 252, quote, was nothing but a doorway. A black arch of old stone between and under two new houses painted yellow. The effect of this bit of 17th century masonry, with its dirty old doors and rusty, broken lantern sticking gaunt and grim out over the narrow sidewalk, was, in its frame of fresh plaster, sinister in the extreme. Yeah, this is a beautiful description. This is exactly the sort of thing I, I was talking about at the, the top of the show. I love his descriptions of, of buildings. Even the way that he's describing this is is not just a, a pretty description, but he's almost assigning a kind of personality to it or even almost some agency to it, right? That it's gaunt, it's grim, it's sinister, right? These are things that we don't really think of inanimate objects being able to be, right? So it, it has personality. He's describing it almost as if it has a face. And I love the care that Cram puts into his descriptions of this house. We're going to get some others that are really great. We're going to get some descriptions of Paris, uh, kind of outdoor Paris uh, out on the streets that are also really great. But I also want to say, hey, didn't 
we literally just do a story about a dude who inherited a house from a wealthy <laughs> aunt around 1890, like exactly the same time. Like how often was this happening in the late 19th century? Was there an overabundance of wealthy ants that we just don't have today in 2020? I, like what what is going on here? Now, of course, I'm thinking of Edith Nesbitt's story, The Ebony Frame, but this really is just a common literary device, especially of this era. And that's all it is. It's a device. Everyone reading contemporary, everyone reading now, everyone knows that this is just a literary device, that it's not really something that's happening in the real world, but everyone agrees not to complain about it being cliched. But in all seriousness, I do want to say that this is a pretty efficient opening, right? Cram is not messing around. Right away, we get the setting, we get the setup, and we know immediately that we are going to be dealing with some kind of haunted house. I mean, we're a page into it and we know everything we need to know and the action is already getting started yeah this trope that cram is leaning on here is a lot of fun i mean even i'm writing a story that leans on this trope a little bit not the aunt but you know an uncle or uh, a family member some you know somebody who cares be who maybe cares or thinks about you beyond your immediate family that wants you to have their wealth for some reason you know something else that cram is building in here is sort of the changing nature of the latin quarter of paris uh, we have these new homes that are being built. And so the the landscape is changing. Wealth is being passed on to people who haven't really worked for it, though the ant has inherited this wealth, as we'll find out over a period of time as well. And this story is taking place during major cultural transitions. And so this is one way maybe that this trope got developed, though it's been around since the time of, of fairy tales, uh, the, the, the uncle or the aunt who has mysterious wealth. And I, I love the trope. I never get tired of running into it. But you have to wonder, where are all these wealthy aunts and uncles? And why don't your parents inherit any money? Why are they always the ones left out? Well, you're right. We are dealing with a haunted house story. And and this house is so sinister, as, as we said before, that the narrator feels he's made a mistake as to the home his friend inherited because it's evident that quote no one lived behind those cobwebs which is uh, another line i love in the story so the narrator asks around about the place he inquired to one of the concierges in a nearby hotel and he learned that dardesh doesn't actually live at number 252 rather dardesh lives in mudan where blade de tarta kept a country house so the narrator gets the address and heads for the river where he can purchase passage to Mudan. Now it's a short train ride, but you can imagine uh, it probably took a little bit more time to get there back in 1886. But before the narrator can get too far towards the docks, he just runs right into Dardesh in the street. And in no time at all, they are sitting in the garden outside of the Chien Blue, a cafe, no doubt, uh, which means a bar also, a restaurant, <laughs> drinking vermouth and absinthe. Dardesh here begins to explain his situation to the narrator. He tells him that he prefers living in Mudan. The Mudan house is perfect. He even has a room where he can have a shrine for his Buddha. But he cannot keep a tenant at number 252. And if he can't keep a tenant in that house, he won't be able to keep both houses. He has to pay for this property somehow. The problem with the number 252 is that it has a reputation for being haunted. And what's worse is that it actually is haunted. And here, Cram writes that no one knows how it is haunted, though. You know, there are no ghosts rattling chains and walking around groaning at midnight. But nonetheless, people feel a horror so deeply 
that some even end up hospitalized for staying there after only a few nights. Dardesh's options then are to stay in the house itself, number 252, or give it over to Torvieja, who has cursed the house so he can eventually get what he wants. He calls Torvieja here that child of sin. Dardesh reveals that he has never stayed at number 252 himself, but, you know, he's an enlightened fellow and he's an open-minded guy and he thinks, you know, the ghosts won't be too bad. The malevolence is something he'll be able to handle. In fact, the reason why he's back in Paris right now is because he's getting together with some Raquel doctor friends of his. They're student doctors. We're just going to call them doctors, though. Uh, So they can all have a bit of a sleepover in the haunted house. And the doctor friends are up for a bit of spooky nonsense, especially as the house is referred to as La Bouche d'Enfer, which is the mouth of hell or the hell mouth here. So we get a Buffy (laughs) reference. Krim is a time traveler, it turns out. Uh, And Dardesh invites the narrator along to meet his friends and get some lunch, you know, his friends in town. And then they're going to head back out to the country house for a little while. And then in a few days, come back to number 252. And the narrator is more than welcome to join the crew in their attempt to outwit the devil and clear up the mystery of the house. The first formation of a Scooby gang, maybe, in haunted house literature. (laughs) And I just have to say, I really do love the tone of this story so far. It is so light and enjoyable. And the style here is just a lot of fun. It is just a bunch of guys getting together, having a sleepover in a haunted house and thinking they can handle anything because life's been good to them so far. I think Graham is doing a great job of, of that kind of attitude. Yeah, I absolutely love the setup for for all of this because it is the, the Scooby gang, whether we actually mean the Scooby-Doo Scooby gang or the Buffy the Vampire Slayer Scooby gang, or if we're just talking about the Winchester brothers, it's the same idea that these are people who want to go find weird fiction stuff and engage with it. We don't have to have any reluctant heroes here or anything like this. We don't get the setup of, you know, you've had to, to move to a new house because of a divorce or a, a new job or, or whatever might be going on. Uh, and then slowly you discover the house is haunted. And of course, you can't move because you're stuck here with a mortgage or whatever it is that all of our contemporary haunted house stories have going on <laughs> here. None of that. It's just, hey, I want to write a haunted house story and I want to get my characters into the haunted house as quickly as possible. So let's just make them freaking ghost hunters. Right. It's it's so much fun. And, you know, we said in the beginning of this episode that, you know, this story probably wouldn't make any of our best of lists. And uh, we have different temperatures with regard to the story with between warmth and coldness. Uh, but I would recommend this as a story for our listeners to read, especially if they're interested in writing style tone, voice, and all that sort of stuff. Cram is nailing it, even if this story does have some narrative faults. Anyway, Dardesh is going to keep going here with a bit of exposition. He wants to fill the narrator in on what he's getting himself into. So he tells the story of the house a little bit more clearly here. Number 252 was inhabited only by his aunt and her servant, who was described as a severe, taciturn creature with massive Breton features and a Breton tongue whenever she vouchsafed to use it. No one else ever entered the house except for Sartor Vieja, who entered often, though no one ever saw him leave. And it became a bit of a neighborhood game to try and catch Sartor Vieja leaving, but no one ever did. And this is a kind of a spooky detail we get in this story. However, once a year, 
there were guests at number 252. Many carriages would arrive up to the house, and veiled women and men with their collars turned up to hide their faces. You know, everybody kind of comes in disguise, would emerge. Music would play within the walls of the house. Strange music and chanting would take place. It's like, you know, a scene at the end of the ninth gate here. And by dawn, (laughs) all of the guests would leave. Dardesh expressed that he believed that this yearly get-together was a celebration of Walpurgisnacht. And there's more strangeness here beyond that. Even though the house has been vacant, Dardesh received reports from the neighbors in the Latin Quarter that about a month ago, the people in the Quarter heard the music and the voices coming from the house. But no one was there, so how could this have been the case? Well, these stories creep the narrator out, and by the time the night of the sleepover at number 252 arrives, he is beginning to feel a little regret for assenting to this adventure so quickly, of wanting to participate in it and hang out with his friend and uh, all these doctors. He's a little bit uh, outside of this maybe class of people. But the narrator has another problem. He believed in ghosts back then when this story happened. He definitely believes in them now that he is older. And his nerves and regret are not improved by the dinner conversation at the Chambleau that they have the night that they're going to stay over. Basically, the group here is telling camp stories. Uh, They're swapping stories of occultism, of Indian rebellions and uprisings against the British Empire. One of the doctor friends tells a story of being locked in a cadaver room at Lucene by accident. And the narrator is barely keeping it together after hearing all these Midnight Society tales. And he says, When we finally drank our last creme de cacao and started for La Bouche d'Enfer, my nerves were somewhat in a rocky state. And I think we are meant to read this as an understatement. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the idea that these uh, these 20-something dudes are all sitting around drinking chocolate liqueurs to build up their liquid courage to go go fight some ghosts in a, in a haunted house. It's just an amazing image. I think we would be drinking something a little, a little harder if we were, uh, if we were going to do this today, if we were going to write this scene today, though we will get some, some, some harder liquor uh, invoked a little bit later in this story. I have to say that the neighbors around this house are way more tolerant than I would be. We're told here that the wizard dude crab walks up to the doorbell Every day, like he's in The Exorcist. Uh, also, there's an annual witchcraft ritual. But this dude is crab walking up to the doorbell every day for 11 years, is what this says. <laughs> I, I don't mean that I would call the cops necessarily if this was going on, like, you know, next door or across the street. But I would definitely move if this was something I was seeing every day. I wouldn't make it to 11 years. I mean, I might make it to one year. But I think after a year of this, I would I would definitely move. And especially given that something supernatural seems to be going on with Sarah. Torievia's uh, ability even to leave without actually leaving, right? They, they set up all of these elaborate traps to see how he's getting out of the house, like a, a stamp, you know, that hasn't been broken or strings and that sort of thing. And none of it is ever broken, but yet somehow he gets out of the house and then has to approach it again the next day. Certainly all of this is really creepy and Cram is doing a great job of building the mood here. And then I do like the scene of the swapping of ghost stories because what he's done is is give us the really creepy setup of the haunted house and then take it away from us, make us wait to get back to it again, to get calmed down from the, the shocking revelations that we've got already. It's a great control of the pacing here. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe this is why the neighborhood committee here is voting to have more new homes built and hotels and kind of revamp the neighborhood <laughs> because they think gentrification is going to solve the problem of the crab walking wizard. You know, it's going to work itself <laughs> out. I think that's that's maybe what's on their mind here. Uh, it's it, it is really funny. I, I really like a lot of what Cram is doing with this story and the group of friends getting together, kind of sitting around a table and telling ghost stories. I mean, that doesn't happen too much with cell phones anymore. You know, and this is a classic Edwardian ghost story setup as well as the group of friends getting together and telling ghost stories. This is this what the whole backdrop of Peter Straub's great novel, Ghost Story, is. This is a great trope in ghost story settings and tellings as well. And I think Cram is using it to great effect here without having it dominate the story. The group of friends here leave the bar and step out into the night. And I want to read Cram's description here of the night in question because I think it's wonderful. I think it's the best bit of prose in the story. This is what Cram writes. It was just 10 o'clock when we came into the street. A hot, dead wind drifted in great puffs through the city, and ragged masses of vapor swept the purple sky. An unsavory night altogether, one of those nights of hopeless lassitude, when one feels, if one is at home, like doing nothing but drink mint juleps and smoke cigarettes. The specificity here that Cram is working with and just the sense that he builds is really fantastic. And you can tell the narrator doesn't really want to continue on with this ghost hunt. Um, but he also builds in the sense that if he was at home, he'd be doing nothing better. It's just a bad night. The night has bad energy. Yeah, here's the harder liquor that I was I was invoking. I forgot it was just literally in the next paragraph. But this is such an evocative description here. It's it's gorgeous. But yeah, having the the bourbon and cigarettes, this really puts me in the mood for a genuinely hard boiled type of occult detective, which is not what we're gonna get here. This is you know still thirty years before hard boiled detectives really come on the scene. But it's still a beautiful, beautiful description. And, you know, Cram does spend a lot uh, of time on these types of descriptions here and, and deploys them, I think, to, to good effect. And you can really see uh, his eye as, uh, as an architect here. Yeah. Well, the group does make it to the house and they try to light a lantern with the door open to the outside in the, in the vestibule in the entryway uh, because they don't want to walk into this house dark. They've freaked themselves out telling scary stories and drinking uh, probably pretty heavily, but there's just too much wind with the door open. And like I said, they don't want to close the door before lighting a match, but eventually they have to close the door in order to get some light. And there are some great descriptions of the interior of the house here that I'm not going to read. Needless to say, it is obvious that this house was once beautiful, but now it's bare and eerie and gives off an uncanny sense. The narrator feels the horrors coming on, and the only thing he can think of to clear his head or maybe to distract himself is a verse from Lewis Carroll's very strange poem, The Hunting of the Snark. And this verse is just repeating in his head over and over again. One of the doctors wonders if anyone in the group has seen such a perfect place for lawlessness as this house, which is kind of a great bit of wit. And the other doctor replies that anything could happen here. And when he lights a match for his pipe, everyone jumps a little bit. And this is just a great moment. It demonstrates the nerves of everybody in the room. It's a great example of showing and not telling. The group talks a little bit more about occultism here and demonology and whether any traditions of witchcraft can be founded in any fact or any real ability to change the world. But then a door slams in the house. And Duquesne, who is one of the doctors, 
tries to lighten the mood with some more wit and he quotes some Hamlet, which always loosens people up, I think. <laughs> and Dardesh kind of continues on with the tour of the house and explains more of its history. The house burned down during the Reign of Terror. His great-uncle was a royalist, though, and he went to Spain after the French Revolution. He returned after Charles X's ascension to the throne and refurbished the house here. And as this group moves through the house, they realize that Sar has really actually taken everything from the house. But there are no ghosts. Things don't seem too bad. The place seems respectable. But Dardesh lets his companions know that they've only seen the part of his house that is on barely used. The, the most respectable part of the house is the unused part. The real spooky stuff is upstairs. So they head upstairs and they go into one of the rooms. Dardesh says that they are now on the threshold of hell itself. This room is painted in a black lacquer that reflects the light of the lanterns. It's off-putting. And they move through that room into another. And this room has a circular shape with walls and ceilings that are painted in a dark blue lacquer. And the room is covered in a hemispherical dome. And across this dome is a, a, a painting of a nude woman. It's painted in red lacquer, kneeling. And from her navel, and this is probably at the, the top of the dome here where her navel would be in this odd grotesque painting hangs a great white object like the traditional rose egg of the story of the arabian nights the floor of this room is also red lacquer and it includes an inlaid pentagram the narrator says as i think we'd all agree if we were to walk into a space like this with only candlelight reflecting on shadows that the effect of being in this room is absolutely terrifying they leave this room and move into a third room. This room is sheathed in brass plates, and in the center of the room is an altar of porphyry. There's also a pedestal of black basalt, and all of this is a lot for the group to take in. It's clearly, you know, a place used for ritual magic. They leave this group of rooms and agree that, yeah, this is a black magic and sacrifice space, and... They don't really want to think about what kind of sacrifices might have taken place in a place like this. And if they're going to catch a ghost, they should probably split up and each stay in one of the rooms that people say are haunted, which is a great, great idea. So that's what they do. And the narrator gets assigned a very simple Parisian sleeping room. He opens the window with some difficulty and sits down on the window seat and he keeps his lantern beside him to keep it lit. Uh, and he fills his pipe and steals himself to stay awake for as long as he can. He hears the voices of the other men talking to one another from the other rooms. And he tries to keep up the conversation with them. But he's getting really tired and he focuses on staying awake. And it's getting harder and harder to do as the night goes on. And Cram does a really great job of describing what it's like if you're at a sleepover and trying to stay awake because people are staying up later than you and you hear voices floating around and you try to talk and all you want to do is sleep and you're being seduced by all the standard kind of seductions of going to bed. He thinks he can sleep for a few seconds and then wake up. You know, you can close your eyes for a few seconds and then You'll be fine. He tries to keep his pipe lit and smoke it, but it just keeps on burning out because he keeps on dozing. None of this is working. And so he gets up and paces around the room. 
But as he tries to get up, he finds that his body is feeling a little numb. Maybe his body's falling asleep. And his lantern is dimming as well, so he tries to turn it up. But now his arms are completely numb. You know, it's not just that his legs are tingling. His arms are numb, as though they're almost paralyzed. And at this moment, he starts awake. He is truly awake. And he remembers a novel he read called The Haunters and the Haunted. And he realizes that right now, he's experiencing the horror, the the haunting that others have experienced. His body is failing him. Cram writes this, A prickling numbness gathered in every nerve. His right arm slipped without feeling from his lap to his side, and he could not raise it. A thin, keen humming began in his head, like the cicadas on a hillside in September. What Cram is describing here is the narrator becoming paralyzed, and and what's worse is that his body is actually dying. The narrator can do nothing to stop it. Then the lantern goes out, and all that's left is the dark. He can't move. He can only panic. I love the description that Cram gives us here, where the way that he describes this happening to the narrator is really great. And, and he, when he gets to the end of that paragraph, he, he ends with this one short line that just says, the darkness was coming fast. And there's a real sense of impending dread there, really maybe doom there. This is really well done. But this same paragraph with these awesome descriptions and this great ending to it begins by invoking someone else's haunted house story or someone else's ghost story. And I I think I just want to make a small note here about writing craft that I don't generally think it's a good idea to invoke another writer in your story, but that is what Cram does here. It just says, I've read that famous ghost story by Edward Bulwer-Lytton, and this was just like that. This experience was just like out of that book. That is definitely not something that you should do. You should never actually describe your Lovecraftian monster as Lovecraftian or, you know, remind me of a Stephen King novel in your story or something like that. Let your work stand on its own. Don't remind me of some other book that I've read, some other story that I've encountered while I'm trying to be immersed or engrossed in yours. It's a really strange step, a weird note, but then it is followed up actually by some of the best freaking writing in the whole (laughs) story. Yeah, it is. It is a strange move. I mean, every writer knows that their influences are coming from other writers or media, other visual media or whatever their influences are. Uh, make your readers work to figure out what they are. And if you're an obvious thief, that's okay. Just make it a little better. Put your own spin on it. Uh, but hopefully you're learning to be a less obvious thief as you improve your cra- your own craft. I- I've never seen a real reference like this to in a story, in a haunted house story. Even though all these writers like Cram and, and Edith Nesbitt and other haunted house writers we've read, even Henry James are relying on tropes and cliche to kind of hang their story on, to drape their story on. So it's very strange to me to see this reference here in this story because it's not clear that it's a recommendation. If you're a writer and you know somebody's written something better, um, don't refer to it in your story maybe. Talk to other people (laughs) about how it's a good story, but... Maybe that's what Krim is doing. He's just trying to give a recommendation. I'm just not sure. It really took me out of the story. Glenn, you also mentioned that, you know, the darkness was coming on here as a great line to kind of transition the story into the full-blown haunting. And, And that's exactly what's going on here. The narrator sees from the velvet blackness of the room two white eyes emerging. These eyes are awful and beautiful at the same time. The narrator is dead. He feels dead. 
so he can't even turn away. His body is positioned so that all he can do is watch these eyes move closer and closer to his lifeless body. He tries to scream, but it's impossible. And soon, the eyes are right in front of him. Then a wet, icy mouth covers his mouth and begins to draw life away from the narrator, to drain his life. And the narrator realizes he is feeding the horror with his own life. Soon, though, his body comes back to life. He has a bit of willpower that he can access. And he tries to fight this creature and move his arms, but the creature is made of a substance that is not wholly physical. And the more the narrator touches this substance, the more he freezes and the more life the horror gets from him. And finally, the narrator yields to death. He realizes he's going to die. But then he hears a voice say, if he is dead, I can never forgive myself. I was to blame. And another voice saying, he is not dead. I know we can save him. If only we can reach the hospital in time. Soon the narrator is being whisked away in a carriage and he knows nothing until he awakes in a hospital ward. He learns that he's at the Hotel Dieu, which is, you know, the hospital of God, which is, you know, very different from the mouth of hell. (laughs) And he asks for the student doctors who were with him on that fearful night. The doctors arrive and tell him what has happened. Everyone was sitting in their own room. And nothing was actually happening for a long time. After 2 a.m., one of the doctors called out to the narrator because he'd gone silent. There was obviously no reply because we know what was happening to the narrator. And so uh, the doctor went to investigate only to find that the narrator's door had been locked from the inside. The other doctor ran to get Dardesh and Duquesne and they all kick the door down together or try to it was really difficult because the door was resisting them and all they could hear inside the room was the dashing footsteps and heavy breathing eventually they broke down the door and upon doing so all of the lanterns went dark something you know some energy expelled itself from the room and they ran into the room and they lit a lantern and they saw that the walls were running with thick glutinous liquid like stagnant water the narrator is drenched in the same liquid that was coming off the walls the men pulled the narrator out of the room stripped off his clothing wrapped him in their coats and got him to the hospital as quickly as possible and that's what happened and so now we get a little bit of a coda to the story here dardesh wanted to return to the house after this event happened and he wanted to go you know during the daytime to examine what had happened more closely, to really look for some empirical proof. But by the time he and his friends arrived at the house after dropping the narrator off at the hotel, the house was on fire. It was nearly destroyed when they got there. And so this house, the mouth of hell, was no more. Over time, a new and ordinary building was built in its place. And while a new building stands at number 252, the stories of Bouche d'Enfer will no doubt remain until the day of judgment. And that is how the story ends. Yeah, isn't this the exact same ending as the ebony frame, as the ebony frame right? <laughs> this house burns as well. All these haunted houses are just burning. The The parallels between these two stories are strange. And I, I don't think that Nesbitt would have read this story or vice versa at, at this point. I mean, it's not like they had the internet for these stories to circulate. So it's just interesting that they, uh, that they kind of begin with the same premise and then end in a similar way, even though what's going on in the middle of them, they 
actual story is wholly different, at least, you know, as different as you can get with two stories that are essentially about a haunted house that also involves uh, early modern witchcraft. Yeah, I mean, the neighborhood committee here in both these stories, I think, is real serious about uh, getting witchcraft out of their neighborhood so their property values can go up. <laughs> and they're, they're secretly lighting the fires. I think this is a story about violent gentrification, perhaps, more than anything else. Yeah, often I uh, I say I'd like to read that story. But in this case, I'm going to say definitively, I do not want to read a series of stories or books about uh, real estate developers who are secretly fighting haunted houses or fighting ghosts, like eradicating their city of, of ghosts. Uh, I don't want to read that. I don't think that's a good hook. I know that we've exhausted doctors and <laughs> cops and detectives and lawyers and so on. Well, it's just Scooby-Doo from the perspective of the villain, really, I think. <laughs> That's true. It would be at that point. Well, let's go ahead and transition into our discussion. There are really just two big things that I want to do here. The The last thing that we'll do is talk about the, the story craft here. I've invoked a little bit of that uh, during the, the recap, but I, I want to talk about the, the big thematic thing that I see going on here, or really maybe I should say the big motif that I see at play here, and that is Orientalism and and witchcraft. At the very beginning of the story, Cram introduces Dardesh's interest in Buddhism and also the occult in the same breath. It's just this single sentence, and he does this as if they are in the same category of thing, or, or even maybe even parts of a whole, parts of a single thing. We then get this real strange invocation of Indian fakirs and the Sepoy mutiny, uh, and then we get to the witch's shrine in the house. When we get there, it's described as something that wouldn't be strange in Egypt or India, but is totally strange in Paris, even though actually the rooms as Cram describes them are exactly how I would describe uh, private uh, Christian sanctuaries in homes of the wealthy elite in cities in Europe uh, in the late Middle Ages and early modernity, like the shape of them, the paint scheme, etc. The only thing that's different is uh, some of the particular bits of art. But at any rate, it seems like Cram is equating Buddhism, Hinduism, and even Islam with European paganism, and then also with each other. And I'm really struck by this. I don't actually quite know what to do with it, but this is the thing that really jumped out at me, is this repeated invocation, particularly of of Buddhism and, and sort of orientalizing ideas, and then pairing that up with witchcraft. It also jumped out to me in reading this story, this kind of conflation of these different cultures that, you know, the British had encountered during their imperial and colonial reigns. And it's strange to me to encounter these ideas, you know, reading this story in 2020, being a huge fan or maybe a, a, a studier of some level is it is an English student of uh, modernism, the movement that really looked at Hinduism or Buddhism. You know, Herman Hesse is was interested in Eastern Though even saying Eastern now doesn't even really respect the the multitude of beliefs and cultures um, that he was drawing from in his books uh, like The Glass Bead Game and Siddhartha and, and things like that. T.S. Eliot, of course, invokes a lot of uh, Hindu uh, scripture and things like that in his poetry. And this is a story that was published in 1895. It's not clear exactly when it was written, maybe around that time. But... I think we're looking at popular attitudes. This story is really interesting as a cultural artifact that is maybe reflecting the views of a popular audience or of a, po a populace of who the readers might be of this story. 
that are conflating all these ideas, that there is no difference between witchcraft and, and Hinduism. This is, you know, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom as well, uh, that, that you see this sort of theme come up, this idea that these non-Christian ideas that are making their way as a result of cultural trade and colonialism and imperialism into the Western world are a kind of slippery slope into a return to uh, pagan rituals and this, these pre-Christian ideas. And I, and I think that Cram isn't even thinking about this. This is kind of the, the unthought background of the culture that he's engaging with. And it only jumps out to us reading this story 125 years later. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. And and there are some some tropes that are just going on here, right? Like the idea of the strange, uh, lonely old lady who was secretly a witch. I mean, this is something you, you invoked fairy tales earlier. This is obviously something that appears in fairy tales as well and is maybe something just generically of a trope of European literature for centuries preceding this. And so you play on that. And Buddhism in particular is something that's in fashion among uh, the elite of the, the, the current generation you know, 20-somethings here in the 1880s, 1890s uh, were drawn very much to Buddhism. And so Cram is maybe just uh, working with literary tropes and then also looking at what's going on contemporarily for him. I don't know enough about Cram personally to know if he was interested in in Buddhism or, or Hinduism himself and was just putting this into the, the, the story. But one of the ways that he does this that really did jump out to me, a real strange juxtaposition here, is that the whole centerpiece of this story, or at least of the haunted house, are these shrines, right? These these real creepy witches' shrines with their their porphyry altars, and we get that contrasted actually with something that Dardesh says about the house that he's using out in the countryside, where he has a an entire room there for his his Buddha, his big statue of Buddha in this French country house. And are we meant to think of this as something actually quite similar to his aunt's pagan shrine, or are these different somehow? I thought that they were being held up as kind of mirror images. Yeah, I think you're right about that. We certainly see Cram playing with the idea that Dardesh's interest in Buddhism is something that attracted his aunt as being, as I, you know, I said in the recap, a slippery slope into black magic. And I think Cram is looking at the way that culture is maybe changing around him, the way things are popular among certain classes of people, what's allowed for certain classes of people. I, I don't know if he's consciously thinking about this, but this is part of the artifact of this story being written when it was that he's just engaging with as a function of contemporariness. And he does maybe see a connection between the influences of the East of having a Buddhist shrine in your house, maybe is functionally no different than having a witchcraft shrine of how the Sepoy rebellion or the Sepoy mutiny is no different or no less violent or to be thought of in the same way as being locked in a morgue um, that these these people are heathens he's he's using kind of the trope of the the savage horde so to speak to undermine the validity or legitimacy of these beliefs and practices and i don't know if he's making the case that Buddhism is going to lead to black magic. But by kind of holding these things up together, he's 
asking us to look at the structure of what these beliefs are and what the practices are and whether or not they're good for a Christian nation, if in fact those are his beliefs and that's what he's looking at. I wonder as well, and, and, and thinking about witchcraft and, and the way that witchcraft is is understood here in, maybe not here in the late 19th century, but in the early 20th century, I'm thinking of Margaret Murray's book about the, the witch cult of, of Europe. This is something that, that Lovecraft and, and also Arthur Mackin were super into. I think we've talked about this in regards to Lovecraft at least once. We will talk about it again. I don't know if this is an idea that Cram would have been exposed to at this point, but this idea that witchcraft, a, a thing that had a genuine historical moment in the 16th and, and then also the 17th centuries. I mean, we did actually encounter this in the ebony frame, but the witchcraft that had this real historical moment was regarded as being something of a, a holdover, as the kind of last remnant of this prehistoric European paganism, this kind of pre-Christian European paganism. No one, I think, really believes that today. I don't think that that's a thing that scholars really give a lot of credence to. But I suspect that if you had asked Cram, he would have agreed with that. And so, I don't know, maybe there's a sense in which Cram is looking at the way that this uh, this old lady has held on to this ancient prehistoric paganism, even though that religion has been replaced by Christianity over time. And maybe Cram then is also looking to the future and seeing what is happening now that Europeans are in such contact with other religions, Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. And we can see that uh, this woman's own nephew has taken on Buddhism, despite the fact that he almost certainly grew up in a, a Christian family, at least a sort of nominally Christian family I mean, you know, of the sort that we, uh, we had Algernon Blackwood talking about uh, a few months ago. So I don't know if he's just thinking about religious change over time here. Uh, but again, you know, all of these are things that are occurring to me as I read the story, but I just don't know that Cram is really doing very much with this motion. Yeah, I, I don't think he is either. I also think he's looking at the way that these beliefs for these classes of people, the, the, the kind of wealthy class, are to be viewed as curiosities. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of tolerable to have a witch uh, next door with a guy who crab walks into the house and never leaves uh, because she pays her taxes and participates in society in a different way or isn't really that bad once a year you can put up with the with this house the way dardesh's beliefs uh in buddhism or his curiosity about buddhism don't really impact his uh, frenchness or americanness in any significant way and so it can kind of be viewed as a curiosity rather than like a uh, something that's going to have a real impact on culture because these are all basically people who are participating in a class system, not naming a religious identity. And I think that that is also part of the tension that is just the warp and woof of the story. And it's really interesting to me, you know, in, in, in rereading this story, to see that Dardesh and his friends and companions don't really believe in any malevolence or anything bad is going to happen. Like, life is pretty good for them. And because that's the case, they have this real bias towards optimism that like nothing bad is going to happen that there isn't real evil in the world that their the ghosts aren't actually really going to hurt them that everything's kind of a, a something they can play with in the world and this is sort of part of the collapse of the enlightenment project that i don't think cram is you know 
doing any counter enlightenment stuff but that kind of culminated in world war one that a lot you know that's one reading of intellectual history at least is seeing the collapse of this project where everything is so good that people stop taking people wanting to harm them and their own security very seriously and so yeah we'll build machine guns and tanks what's the harm we're just playing out here uh, and it's th- this kind of attitude that Cram really displays well with his characters. That's a really interesting observation. It might be fun when we get to our, our uh, year in review show in a, f- a few months. I guess we're about halfway through the year at this point or close to it. It might be fun to look back to something we did in our first year on the air, The Repairer of Reputations, which actually does take up a lot of these same ideas, published basically exactly the same year. But I'm not sure that they're espousing the same worldview there. So that might be a fun comparison to do. But that will have to be for another episode. I think that we should... Uh, move on here and talk about craft. I, I have two craft questions that I, I want to ask. And these are about the setup and about the ending, because I do think that what we get in the middle of this story is really awesome. It's quite good. It's never going to be my favorite story of 2020, but it was perfectly adequate as haunted house stories go. And we are building up a pretty good catalog of haunted house stories here. So that might also be something else we take a look at in our uh, year in review episode. But let's talk about the ending of this story from a craft perspective. We have complained on several episodes this year already about getting explanations as postscripts, and here we've got one again in this story. And this one, I found to be probably the worst of them, actually. It was certainly the least satisfying to me, and so I would just like your thoughts on how you might fix this, how you might end this story in a way that is more satisfying to an audience in 2020. I mean, that question just speaks to the core narrative problem of the story, which is that we have a passive narrator who, though he has great voice and the style of the story is really good, doesn't have anything to do with the plot of the story. He doesn't know anything about what he's doing in Paris. He doesn't know anything about the house. He has to be told everything. And he doesn't really participate in ending the haunting of the house. And he's not active in his own rescue and survival. And so we have this character who is our in to this world. It's a it's a fish out of water story, which is among my favorite types of, of stories for genre fiction, especially because it's a great way to have an, a, a cipher for the audience to be introduced to a new world. But you have to have a reason for that person to be in that world other than just trying to crash on his friend's couch for a few days while he gets enough money together to travel to his next destination. <laughs> and, and I think that that... That that's a real problem. That would have to be fixed in this story. So for the ending of the story to be fixed, the whole problem of the narrator would have to be fixed. And I also want to comment on two points in the story uh, that that speak to this problem. One, and both are kind of breaking the fourth wall moments. The first we talked about, which is referencing another novel that gave this guy knowledge of what was happening to him. So if this person, if this narrator is knowledgeable of hauntings and what's going on and believes in ghosts, make that a core part of his character trait. Make him sensitive to ghosts. He is the one who's haunted. Uh, Maybe he's learned some magic himself or has learned how to ward himself against this. I'm not sure you would have to do something like that. But Cram also references other stories he's written with this character, maybe because he hopes to publish them later, that are also a part of this book of ghost stories that we have. So we're going to see this narrator again show up and be kind of Cram's uh, ghost finder. But he's he's passive. So I would hope that Cram corrects this in the next story and gives this narrator a more active role in 
knowing about ghosts and hauntings, knowing what to do about them, and giving him a reason why he's seeking them out instead of just kind of accidentally stumbling across this whole circumstance. Yeah, I completely agree. And in fact, you've, you've anticipated the second question that I was going to ask about craft. So we can roll this all up into just this one conversation here. The idea of having the narrator or, or even just your protagonist simply traveling on vacation and then running into someone you know and uh, having some, some antics of some sort, that is great for a Hitchcock movie. That's great for a thriller story or a detective story of some sort, but it doesn't really work well at all here. The, the narrator definitely needs to have some purpose, a stronger purpose than he does. I mean, you have pitched the idea that maybe he's like a real serious business, a cult detective, the way that we've had Karnacki or John Silence. I don't think we needed to quite go that far, but we could have even just had something like Dardesh actually summon the narrator to Paris for, for some reason, maybe just because they're good buds and he, he wants all of his friends around him while he tries to do this thing. Maybe it is that the narrator, although not a genuine occult detective, has had some run-ins with ghosts before, and so... If you're just looking around for who can you call on uh, to help you with a ghost problem, you remember that friend you've got who told you some ghost stories one time, and you think, he might know how to help, so let me have him come across the Atlantic and and help me out with this. But just anything with some more purpose would uh, have helped propel the narrative a little bit more. But then I do think you're absolutely right that on the flip side of that, it would have been something that could have helped with the, the ending. I, for one, simply don't think that we need this explanation at the ending. I think we could have just had him wake up in the hospital and say, hey, I woke up in the hospital and then I found out that the house had burned. And I don't need to know about his friends getting him out of there. I don't need that other story narrated by him as suddenly now a separate story told in the third person, right? We could have just stuck with the whole story in the first person. I didn't need that bit of information. I could have filled in all of those details on my own. They actually would have been more interesting in my own imagination, I think. All we really needed was the coda about the house burning for the real resolution of what's up with the house. Yeah, I mean, they may have been more interesting in your imagination, but then you would have been left with a story where nobody takes action (laughs) on the page. (laughs) Nobody does anything. And that would have been its own real narrative problem as well. Cram needed to add some agency and participation in this event in the story somewhere. You can't just have people drinking, going to a haunted house, something bad happening to a passive character and then that character waking up in a hospital and all the other characters are fine. Uh, If you had done the story with the rest of the characters burning down in the house, uh, going back to investigate foolishly that night, that would have been a a kind of a a way to subvert the need for action in this story. But this is a story full of passive characters who want to tell ghost stories and, and, and have a sleepover. Something has to happen at some point in this story. Yeah, though very little does. And and that's not really a criticism that, that I have. I like this story quite a bit. I really like the middle parts of the story in particular. It's the ending and, and it's the setup to some degree that I, I was critical of. Well, I think you're right. There is a definite lack of action in this story. I don't necessarily mind that in in general, but I thought it was strange the way that Cram here gave us no action, no action, just the description of the effects of this house and and so on, and then suddenly does give us action, but told from a totally different perspective than we'd gotten the rest of the story. I think that was a mistake, but I think at this point we have, uh, we've dissected, we've doctored this story as much as I think we need to. Uh, and so that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDonald. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. 
We'd love for you to join us on the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of number 252, Rue Monsieur Le Prince. Let us know what you thought about this ghost story. If you've read it, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the style and tone and voice of the story and maybe your own thoughts about how you would fix it if you think it has narrative problems at all. Yeah, we always love talking storycraft on the forum. And I do want to say as well that in addition to our forum, we have just started our own subreddit on Reddit. It's just called Clay Temple Media. So if you are someone who is on Reddit a lot and would rather engage with with us and especially engage with other listeners there rather than our forum, uh, we hope you'll check that out. I mean, at this moment is literally just me in there because I only created it just this morning uh but hopefully that will be a place where we'll have some conversations as well and if you want to check out that edmund hamilton story and support the network please do find us on patreon.com slash clay temple media every pledge is a huge help and we're so grateful for the support before we go one last note which is just to say that our schedule is about to get a little wonky we're going to take a regular episode off because i need some parental leave because it turns out that it's actually quite difficult to read a book and change diapers at the same time, uh, at least not until I learn how to, I don't know, genetically grow some new arms or something for myself when we find ourselves in the fifth head of Cerberus for that. So we're going to be back with the first Jack Vance Dying Earth story, Turgeon of Mir, on June 16th. But even though we are skipping a regularly scheduled episode, in between now and then, we're going to air an extra episode that was commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. This is an episode about weird fiction in role-playing games. So that is going to be out next week on May 26th. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.